if you've not got an outline yet, you can grab one from the back. Uh, I put some fill in the blanks in there, if you didn't notice. So if you have a writing utensil, you can follow along um, and fill out the outline. Uh, before we get started, uh, I guess I can introduce what we're talking about really fast. We're, we're going to talk about covenant theology for the next two weeks. So it's going to be quite kind of a short series, but I think we'll get a good broad overview uh, into what covenant theology is. Uh, and today we're going to talk about also the covenant of redemption. So that's what we're going to do today. But before we get started, let's open with prayer and ask for the Lord's help as we study his word. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us into your covenant, for uh, making us your sons and your daughters and giving us an inheritance in your son. And we ask that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, give us understanding and wisdom that we might better uh, comprehend your gospel, uh, better understand your word um, and the covenants that you have made with your people in it. Uh, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, we're talking about covenant theology. So first on our outline is an introduction to covenant theology. What is it? Um, and first, before we talk about what is covenant theology, what is a covenant to begin with? For some of us, that might be uh, just like Christianese. It just blends in with all the other words, uh, and we just kind of take it for granted that we know what a covenant is. Um, for some of us, we, don't, we actually don't know, but uh, it would be helpful to get a definition of covenant. Uh, there are a couple of ones that have been suggested by various theologians, so I'm going to give you those first. Suggested uh, definitions. The first that I have is from O. Palmer Robertson, uh, who's he's actually a minister in the PCA. He's a, he's a well-known theologian. He wrote a book called Christ of the Covenants. Um, I haven't read the whole thing. I'm sure it's it's good overall, but his definition of a covenant is that uh, a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. A bond in blood. Uh, the next definition I have is from John Murray, who again, he's another well-known theologian. He, he, I've read quite a bit of him. Um, he does a great job. Uh, but he did kind of go astray on some of the covenants. Uh, we'll talk about next week, but he denied the existence of the covenant of works. Um, for various reasons, and actually you'll see why once I read his definition. John Murray said a covenant is a sovereign administration of grace and of promise. Uh, and so it's always gracious, it's always redemptive to Murray. And looking at these covenants, we can see a problem with the definitions in that they don't cover the broad spectrum of the biblical covenants. Because not all covenants are sealed with blood sacrifices. Uh, Robertson said, a bond in blood, but not all covenants involve blood. For example, the Davidic covenant um, in 2 Samuel 7, there's no blood sacrifice involved, um, nothing like that. Uh, and uh, in response to Murray's definition, not all covenants involve redemptive grace. And of course, an example would be the pre-fall covenant with Adam. It was before sin existed, so there was no need for redemption. Um, and so this covenant, you know, and we'll argue, I'll argue next week that it is in fact a covenant, but um, it doesn't involve redemptive grace. And so these two covenant, uh, these two definitions of covenant uh, don't quite help us fully because there are covenants in scripture that uh, don't work the way that their definitions say that they work. 
So our definition, again, needs to cover the broad spectrum of biblical covenants. Um, we need a very generic definition. And so the generic definition that I'll put forward uh, this is, uh, I'll give you a long one and I'll give you a shorter one. The long one is from uh, Meredith Klein, who was a professor at my school. I, he, he was retired and passed away long before I w ever went to that school, uh, Westminster. But we read a lot of his works, um, and he's a brilliant theologian. And he did a lot of work on the covenants. Um, and he said that a covenant is a sovereign administration of the kingdom of God that is enforced in a revelation of law consisting of stipulations and sanctions, both promissory and penal. Kind of a mouthful, but I thought Klein's definition was really helpful. And I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it by saying that a, a covenant is an oath-bound promise or relationship with conditions and consequences. And those consequences could be positive or negative. It's an oath-bound promise or relationship with conditions and consequences. So, for example, a marriage is a covenant. That's, that's you know, uh, most of us think in that term um, anyways. A marriage is a covenant. And think of why it's a covenant. It's a covenant because, you know, when you're standing there, uh, the pastor is uh, officiating. You take oaths. You take vows to one another, the wedding vows. Um, and those are the conditions of the covenant. If you break those conditions, then there is a consequence that can be uh, levied against you. You could be divorced. Uh, and so there's, there's conditions and there's consequences. The condition, you know, being faithful, uh, staying together in, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. Um, if you leave your spouse, the, con the consequence uh, could be levied against you. And so that's what a, that's what a covenant is. It's not... Um, yeah, we just, we just need to have this generic definition that can cover all of the different kinds of covenants that we see in Scripture. So we're, we're saying a covenant is an oath-bound promise or relationship with conditions and consequences. So that's what a covenant is. Now, what is covenant theology? Um, I have a quote uh, here from Mike Horton, who was, who was one of my professors. Um, and in his book, Introducing Covenant Theology, he said that Reformed theology is synonymous with covenant theology. So Reformed theology is covenant theology. So if you're familiar with Reformed theology, then you should at least be somewhat familiar with covenant theology. And what we mean when we say that is that covenant theology is the Reformed way of reading Scripture. It's the reformed way of reading scripture. We read scripture through a covenantal lens. Every passage of the Bible, we look at it. Um, maybe this is maybe we don't, don't do this first or, or second, but we at some point we think, what does this passage have to do with the covenants? Uh, because the covenant of uh, in scripture, it's the meta narrative of scripture. That just means it's it's the overarching narrative behind all of the other narratives. Uh, it's the unity of the Bible, really. Uh, God's relationship to mankind is always in the form of a covenant, and the Bible is a, uh, really a history and an explanation of God's relationship to mankind. And so it's a history and relationship of God's covenant with man. Uh, this, is a, this is a definition from Sacred Bond. That, Sacred Bond is a really good introduction into covenant theology uh, written by a guest lecturer at my school and a pastor in Escondido that uh, I sat under for a little bit. Uh, really good intro to covenant theology. Uh, they say that covenant theology is a system of theology that interprets the scriptures 
with the biblical doctrine of the covenant as the organizing principle. The organizing principle of all of scripture is the covenant. And so it's not just, you know, when you're reading scripture, sometimes this is how we think. We're reading scripture, and then, you know, we get to uh, Genesis 9. Oh, there's a covenant. And then we get to Genesis 12. There's another covenant. And they just pop up here and there in scripture. That's not what covenant theology says. Covenant theology says that the whole Bible is a record of the covenant between God and man. The whole Bible is a record of God's covenant. It's not just here and there you find covenants. It's the whole Bible. Uh, and so covenants aren't just part of scripture. They bind all the diverse testaments, the Old and New Testament, all the diverse books and genres together. Covenant, again, I said this already, covenant is the unity of scripture. If you're trying to understand how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, how the Israelite kingdom relates to the Christian church, covenant is one of the best ways for you to understand that. And so that's what covenant theology is, but what covenants are we talking about when we talk about covenant theology? There are, there are lots of covenants in scripture, right? There's the, um, there's the Adamic covenant. Uh, we'll talk about that one next week. The Noahic covenant, that one's actually the first covenant that's explicit. It has the term covenant um, applied to it. There's the Abrahamic. I'll do something different then. Uh, Adam. There's the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the uh, Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. I think these are the main covenants we see in scripture. This isn't quite working. Um, but these covenants are not the ones that covenant theology is most concerned with. I don't want to say that exactly, but covenant theology looks at these covenants, absolutely, and these covenants are important, but covenant theology says that there are two overarching covenants that stand behind these. There are two covenants that stand behind all of the other covenants. And those are the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. These two covenants uh, stand behind all of the other covenants that we find in scripture. Every specific covenant that God makes with a specific person like Abraham or Moses or David is an expression of one of these two covenants. And they, these two covenants represent two principles, uh, two different principles that God administers through the covenant. The principles of conditionality, which would be the covenant of works. It's conditional and the principle of unconditionality, or uh, the, the, the covenant of grace, unconditional. And that's what these two covenants represent, two different principles through which God is in covenant with man. But covenant theology says that there's even another covenant that stands behind these two covenants, and that is the covenant of redemption. And so there's not just these two that stand behind these, but even behind these two, there's the covenant of redemption that stands behind them. Uh, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are historical. They're executed and carried out in time with man. But the covenant of redemption that stands behind them is eternal. It's made in eternity and then executed in history. And so that's the one that we're going to talk about today. We're going we're gonna to explore the covenant of redemption. The covenant that stands behind all the other covenants. 
So first, uh, let's do an overview of the covenant of redemption, just so you have an idea of what we're talking about before we get into uh, some more detail. So the covenant of redemption is known by a, a various different names. Obviously, the covenant of redemption. I use, I use these acronyms. This is not COW. This is covenant of works, just so you know. Uh, whenever my wife like reads my she was reading my class notes when I was in seminary. She's like, what the heck is cow? Why are you talking about cows in class? It's covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption. Uh, the covenant of redemption is also known, could be known as the eternal covenant, the council of peace, and that's actually biblical language, and we'll see that in a bit, or the pactum salutis, which is just a Latin term for the pact of salvation. Uh, you could also just say covenant of redemption. Um, the parties of the covenant of redemption, uh, unlike all of these other covenants, even, even these two covenants, uh, the covenant of redemption is not made between God and man. These two covenants are made between God and man. Obviously, all of these covenants that we see in Scripture are made between God and man. But the covenant of redemption is a covenant that is made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those are the parties of this covenant. And so that means it's an intra-Trinitarian covenant. Not an inter-Trinitarian covenant, because an inter-Trinitarian would be between different trinities, and obviously there's only one trinity. Intra means between the parties within the trinity itself, among the parties of the trinity, the persons. It's a covenant between the Father, Son, and Spirit. The periods of the covenant of redemption is that, I've already said this, it was established in eternity and executed in history. Established in eternity and executed in history. The requirements, um, I'm just going to say the requirements, I, I put promises there too, but we'll get to the promises later. The requirements of the covenant, you could also say the conditions, right? Because a covenant is an oath-bound relationship with conditions and consequences. So the conditions of the covenant is that the father gives the son to redeem the elect. He gives his only begotten son to redeem the elect. And the son agrees to be the redeemer of the elect and to do everything necessary for their salvation. And the spirit promises to apply the son's redemption to the elect, uh, bringing what Christ did 2,000 years ago to the elect so that they're actually saved in time. Uh, I, have a, I have a good summary definition for you on your outline, uh, again from Sacred Bond. They say that the covenant of redemption is the covenant established in eternity between the Father, who gives the Son to be the redeemer of the elect and requires of him the conditions for their redemption, and the Son who voluntarily agrees to fulfill these conditions, and the Spirit who voluntarily applies the work of the Son to the elect. I think it's a great, uh, pretty full, but summary definition of the covenant of redemption. So that's an overview. That's just, just so you know what we're talking about when we go into, when we go into the weeds, I guess. Um, so now let's talk about its legitimacy. Why can we talk about this? Is it biblical and is it confessional? And when we're talking about confessions, of course, we're talking about the Westminster Confession, which is uh, our confession here at Spring Meadows. Uh, it's a confession that was written in uh, 1640s um, in England, and it doesn't explicitly talk about the covenant of redemption, and we'll see what it does in a second. So the Westminster Confession of Faith 
uh, chapter 7, section 3, is talking about the covenant of grace. And it says the parties of the covenant of grace uh, are God and believers. But then we turn to Westminster Larger Catechism, question 31, and it says that the parties of the covenant of grace are Christ and the elect. And then we come to Westminster Larger Catechism 36, and it says that Christ is the mediator of the covenant of grace. And there's actually some tension here. You might not catch it at first, but how could a person be in one covenant and be a party of that covenant and a mediator at the same time? You can't mediate between yourself and another person. That's not what a mediator does. A mediator mediates between two parties, and he's a third party. He's not in the covenant. Uh, except as a mediator. He's not a party. And so it doesn't quite make sense to call Christ a mediator and a party of the same covenant. And so there's some tension here. How do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile what the Westminster Confession is doing? Obviously, we could just say they're wrong, they messed up, uh, and we just gotta, we gotta just clarify what they're saying. But I think it's, it's a little bit more um, specific what was happening. And what, what was happening was that the Westminster Confession of Faith describes the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace with one word, the covenant of grace, or I guess one term, three words. Uh, and so it's one term that they're using to describe two realities because the distinction between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works as a theological distinction wasn't fully developed in the 1640s when the Westminster Confession was written. And so they weren't able to use the distinction because it, it wasn't in existence yet. Uh, the, the concept was there. The concept between, uh, the concept of a covenant between the Father and the Son was there uh, in the 1640s, but the term covenant of redemption wasn't being used yet. And you can actually see this when you compare the Westminster Confession to later documents or contemporary documents. So for example, uh, just like the Westminster Confession treats the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace with the one term. So does Herman Witsius, who wrote a book called The Economy of the Covenants Between God and Man. It's a wonderful and probably one of the earliest uh, works of covenant theology. He wrote it in 1677, so this is roughly, you know, 30 years after the Westminster Confession was written. And he talks about the covenant of grace, and he says... In order to more thoroughly understand the covenant of grace, two things above all are to be distinctly considered. First, the covenant which intervenes between God the Father and Christ the Mediator. And second, that testamentary disposition by which God bestows by immutable covenant eternal salvation upon the elect. So he's talking about the covenant of grace and he says there are two things we need to understand. First, the covenant between God the Father and Christ the mediator, and second, the, the covenant between God and the elect. And so he's seeing these two realities, the covenant of redemption, the eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant, and the covenant of grace between God and the elect. He sees these two realities, but he uses just one term, the covenant of grace. That's exactly what Westminster Confession does. Uh, Westminster Confession does hint at the covenant of redemption in 8.1 when it says, that it pleased God and his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man. 
so it, it's hinting at this agreement between the father and the son, that the father chose the son to be the mediator. Um, it's hinting at the reality of the covenant of redemption. But when you look, you know, the, the, the Westminster Confession was actually, um, it was taken on by various different groups that weren't necessarily Presbyterian and reformed, uh, or, or maybe they just had specific distinctions that they wanted to uh, adapt the Westminster Confession to fit into. So, for example, the, the Savoy Declaration was a congregationalist modification of the Westminster Confession of Faith. They took the same document that we subscribe to, and they just changed it a little bit in some spots to fit their distinctives. Uh, I think mainly their polity, their church government. And one of the key uh, uh, persons to draft the Savoy Declaration was John Owen, who is a, a well-known theologian to us. Uh, and it was written in 1658, which is only you know 20-something years after the Westminster Confession was written. And they took this section in 8.1 about, you know, it's, it says in the Westminster Confession, please God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus to be the mediator. Uh, they took that section and they added something to it. This is what the Savoy Declaration says. It pleased God to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus. And I'm, I'm having some ellipses there. To choose and ordain the Lord Jesus according to a covenant made between them both. And so just 20 years later, they put it in explicitly that this, 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 uh, choice from the father to the son to be the mediator is according to a covenant between them. Uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, it's an even later modification of the Westminster Confession, makes it even more explicit. In, in the section 7.3, it says that the covenant of grace is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the father and the son about the redemption of the elect. And so you can see, with the Westminster Confession, it's just at a certain point in history where the distinction wasn't developed yet. But as you go later on and you look at later documents that are either revising the Westminster Confession or they're talking about the same thing, they get more explicit in using that covenant language about the Father and the Son agreeing to redeem the elect. And so it shouldn't worry us when we don't see the covenant of redemption in the Westminster Confession of Faith. We just need to remember that they're talking about that reality. They're talking about the reality of a covenant between the Father and the Son. They just don't have the language yet because of where, uh, where they fell in the history of theology. But it is helpful for us to distinguish between these two covenants. We could just go with Westminster Confession and not distinguish them and just use one term. But I think we can benefit from the development that happened after the Westminster Confession was written and distinguish between the two covenants. Um, it's helpful because it explains that tension that I described earlier. How is Christ a mediator and a party? Well, the answer is he's in two different covenants. Uh, and there's also biblical precedent for this distinction. And so that's what we'll look at now. The biblical precedent for the covenant of redemption on your outline is under biblical data. The first is Zechariah 6.13. And let me pull it up so I can read it for you. Zechariah 6.13. This is one of the famous... Oop, let's see if my phone will pull it up. Okay. Uh, famous texts to defend the covenant of redemption. It says, it is he... Oh, oh sorry. I'll back up to 12. Yeah, I'll back up to 12. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, 
for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. The council of peace shall be between them both. And so there's two figures that we're talking about. There's, there's obviously the Lord, there's the Lord God, and then there's the man whose name is the branch. And this is a common term in the prophets for the Messiah. Um, it kind of comes from this image of uh, the line of David being like a tree that was cut down during the exile. Um, and I think in Isaiah it says, a root will sprout from the stump of Jesse. Uh, that's what we're talking about. It's the branch, the Messiah, who comes out from the line of David. And it says that there will be a council of peace between them both. And we're talking about the two parties. We're talking about the Lord and the Messiah. There's a council of peace between them. And that might not immediately sound like a covenant to you, but in Scripture, taking counsel together is often synonymous with making a covenant. You can see this in uh, Psalm 83.5. I won't read it for you, but uh, it, it holds in parallel those two terms. It says, take covenant together, or take counsel together, and then make a covenant in Psalm uh, 83.5. Taking counsel and covenant making are hand in hand. And further, peace is the purpose or goal of a covenant, almost always. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a treaty. When you're trying to make peace between two uh, warring nations, you sign a treaty to make peace between them. Um, but of course, between the Lord and the Messiah, there has always been peace. But the purpose of the covenant was to make peace between the Lord, the Messiah, and the, the elect people. And so we see this, this council of peace between the Lord and the branch, who is the Messiah, which is really, it's a covenant whose purpose is to make peace. Um, and that's what, that's what Zechariah 6.13 shows us. The next text is Luke twenty two twenty nine, And when you read this in your ESV, you might not see the relevance here, um, but we'll bring it out. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is shortly before he's betrayed. I think just after um, he, he uh, establishes the Lord's Supper. Jesus says to his disciples, I assign to you, as my Father assigns to me, a kingdom. And that word assign, uh, some translations say grant, uh, it's actually this word in Greek, diatithemi, which is from diatheke, which means covenant. And so it's really, you could say, uh, I, I, I covenantally grant to you, as the Father covenantally granted to me, a kingdom. And this is even... Uh, this is supported by a textual variant. Uh, in one of the Greek manuscripts, there is a textual variant, which just means that there's another. There, most manuscripts say that uh, Christ said, I will grant to you a kingdom. But there's a couple manuscripts that say, I will grant to you a covenant. I will, I will covenantally grant to you a covenant, is what a couple manuscripts say, um, which kind of just... Um, it bolsters the fact that that was the sense of what Jesus was saying. Uh, I don't think that's what he originally said. I think he originally said kingdom. But these couple manuscripts are just bringing out the fact that Jesus was talking about a covenant when he was talking about granting a kingdom. 
And of course, that's supported also by the, the definition of covenant that we saw earlier, that it's a sovereign administration of the kingdom of God. Uh, and so if he's granting them a kingdom, it has to do with a covenant. But most convincing is that that word, a sign, is actually this word for covenantal granting. It has to do with a covenant. So that's Luke 22, uh, 29. It's really the most explicit, uh, most explicit references to a covenant between the Father and the Son. But then we also have this text in Psalm 110. This is a very famous messianic psalm. Uh, I think, I, I, I probably should have looked this up. I was thinking about this yesterday, but I didn't have time to verify uh, my statistics, but I'm pretty sure it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament um, is Psalm 110. Um, but we have these two passages uh, in this psalm. Uh, verses 1 and 4 are really the most relevant, so I'll read those to you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, and so we see something here. We see the Lord swearing to, to this individual that you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, and I think Jesus, is it, I think Jesus uses this passage, Psalm 110, 1, uh, where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, and it's, Jesus points out, is this David who's, who's being called my Lord? Um, it's obviously not. It's the Messiah. So the Lord says to my Lord, who is the Messiah? And then we see in verse 4 the continued speech between the Lord and the Messiah. And he swears an oath to the Messiah. Remember our definition of covenant. It's an oath-bound relationship. And so we see an oath between the Lord and the Messiah here. And this is even explicit when we come to Hebrews 7, uh, 21 to 22, and I'll just turn there really fast to read it to you. So Hebrews 7, he quotes this text. Um, excuse me. Uh, so he quotes this text. Uh, he quotes Psalm 110, 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And then in verse 22, he says, this makes Jesus the grantor or the surety of a better covenant. And so he sees this, this sworn oath between the Father and the Son as evidence of a covenant between them, that he's the surety of a better covenant. Um, so it's not, it's not far-fetched to say that this oath is evidence of a covenant. That's exactly what Psalm 7 says. So that's, uh, sorry, Hebrews 7 says that it's, it's the evidence of a covenant. Um, so that's, that's three really relevant texts. But there are also other, uh, there are other evidences of a, a covenant between the Father and the Son. And they're not as explicit as these, as these past ones that we've seen. But what we do is we look at our definition of covenant. We start there. It's an oath-bound relationship with conditions and consequences. And then we look at every spot that we see the evidence of an oath-bound relationship with conditions and consequences between the Father and the Son. So we have the definition, and then we see the definition applied to the Father and the Son, even though the term covenant isn't always there. 
So for example, we see an oath-bound relationship between father and son. We've already seen that in Psalm 110, that there was, uh, that the father swore to the son that to make him a priest. We also see it in Psalm, uh, sorry, Isaiah 45, 23. It says, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that will not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And it's not immediately obvious there, but when you compare it to Philippians 2.10, where Paul says, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so we see this, this oath, this sworn oath in Isaiah 23 about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. And we see in Philippians 2, that's applied to Jesus. And so it's a sworn oath. The Father is swearing that every knee will bow to Jesus and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Uh, we also see the next part of the definition, that there are conditions. Uh, we can see this in various places. Uh, Psalm 40, uh, and, and you read this alongside Hebrews 10. Uh, Psalm 40 says, In sacrifice and offering you've not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God, your law is within my heart. And so we see this individual in Psalm 40 is saying, I delight to do your will. Your law is within my heart. And then in Hebrews 10, that's applied to Jesus. He came, uh, in Hebrews 10, it says Jesus came to do God's will. That's the condition, to do the Father's will, and he delights in it. Jesus himself said this um, in John in various places, but uh, for example, John 4, 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So again and again, Jesus says, uh, I haven't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is part of the condition between the covenant between the father and the son. And there are also consequences. And by consequences, I mainly mean rewards. There are rewards promised to the son for his obedience. Uh, for example, uh, Psalm 2, 7 and 8 uh, is often seen as, uh, as a, co uh, a conversation between the father and the son. And the father says, uh, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. And so this is a promise as a reward, the nations as the son's inheritance. Philippians 2, 6 to 11, uh, it says of Jesus that uh, he humbled himself uh, to the point of obedience, uh, uh, even death on a cross, the point of obedience of death on a cross, and that he was exalted because of that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And so we see in response to Jesus' obedience, humbling himself to the point of death on the cross, in response to that, he's given the reward of being exalted. Uh, again, Hebrews 2.9, we can see this, that he was crowned with honor and glory because of the suffering of the cross. That's what Hebrews 2.9 says. And so we see this relationship between what Jesus did and what Jesus was given uh, by the Father. He was given glory and exaltation because of his obedience. And so that's, that's the biblical data. Uh, that's the biblical, I guess, defense for the covenant of redemption. And so now we'll look at 
some more specifics uh, before we wrap up. Uh, first, the parties of the covenant. We already saw this, but we'll look at uh, more specifics of what their roles are, the parties of the covenant. The Father, of course. The Father represents the Godhead. He's the source and fountain of the covenant. The Father sets the terms, and he swears to send the Son as Redeemer of the elect. The Son represents the elect. He's the surety or head of the covenant. And so the Son swears to do everything necessary in order to redeem the elect. Uh, as the surety, that means Christ is legally responsible for guaranteeing debts. Uh, we have a debt to the Father, our sin, and the Son steps in and says, I will pay this debt even if this party is unable to. Um, and so that's what he does as the surety or the guarantor of the covenant. Uh, Christ fulfills the, coven uh, the conditions according to the Father's will and earns rewards. So Christ is not the mediator of the covenant of redemption. He's the mediator of the covenant of grace, uh, but he is a party of the covenant of redemption. Uh, the Spirit, the Spirit doesn't get a lot of attention when theologians talk about the covenant of redemption, um, but he is a party of this intra-Trinitarian covenant. Uh, the Spirit brings Christ's redemption to the elect, and I like to think of him as the executor of the covenant. I don't know if anybody uses that language, but that's something that I was trying to think of. What, what's the Spirit's role? And he executes the terms of the covenant. He takes what Jesus did um, in his death and resurrection, and he applies it to make sure that uh, every heir actually gets a piece of the inheritance. To make sure that the elect actually receive the redemption that Christ purchased. So the, the, the Spirit swears to empower the Son's redemptive work. The Son was uh, filled with the Spirit without measure. Uh, he promises uh, and swears to be poured out on the church and to apply Christ's life and death to the elect. Um, so that's, that's the role of the Spirit in, in the covenant of redemption. So now we'll look at the conditions and consequences. Again, rewards. The conditions, uh, the covenant of redemption, uh, this covenant is really a covenant of works for the Son, uh, which means that the Son was required to work in order to earn a reward. Uh, it's the same kind of covenant that God entered into Adam. Uh, And so the son agrees to become the last Adam, to be in this conditional covenant of works with the father, to make atonement for the sins of his people, and to fulfill the law in their place. The conditions include Christ's incarnation and atonement. And so that's the conditions of the covenant. Christ agrees to redeem the elect, to become the last Adam, to make atonement uh, for their sins. The promises and rewards of the covenant. First, the father promises to fully equip the son for his work. Um, and that's not quite a reward because it happens before the obedience is rendered. But the father promises to give the spirit without measure so that the son is able to carry out the work perfectly. The father rewards the son by glorifying him. We saw that um, in some of the texts that we briefly looked at, but Christ's exaltation, his resurrection, and his ascension and glorification are part of the reward that God the Father gives to the Son because of his obedience. Uh, he also rewards the Son by giving him an everlasting kingdom. You know, Matthew 28, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's after his resurrection. 
Uh, the Father rewards the Son by granting him a spiritual seed, which is the elect. And so the Son is not just rewarded with his own glory, but also with the glory of the elect. He's promised a, a glorified and resurrected people. He's also uh, rewarded by the pouring out of the Spirit on the elect, um, which we've already talked about briefly. Uh, and so now let's look at the covenantal nature of this covenant of redemption. Because some Reformed theologians, some well-known ones, actually both Reformed theologians that I mentioned at the beginning of our lesson, they affirm that, of course, God had a, a, an eternal plan of redemption. Uh, they, of course, God eternally elected certain individuals to salvation, but they deny that there was a covenant of redemption. It was a plan, but not a covenant. So, for example, Opama Robertson says that the covenant of redemption is speculative. It goes beyond the bounds of what Scripture says. He also says it's just not fitting to talk about a covenant between the Father, Son, and Spirit. John Murray uh, said, that the, that said that a covenant is a temporal administration, and so it can't be eternal. Others have said that a covenant implies subordination, that there's a greater party and a lesser party, and of course you cannot talk about subordination within the Trinity, um, and so you can't talk about a covenant within the Trinity if you're thinking of it that way. But, you know, even though these theologians are brilliant and they have their reasons, if we have the right definition of covenant, God's plan of redemption is covenantal. It is a covenant. Uh, because there's no reason to imply subordination. There can be a covenant between equals. Um, even extra-biblically, there are covenants between equal kings. One doesn't have to be greater than the other. Um, there, uh, there's also no reason to limit a covenant to a temporal administration. Remember, our definition is just uh, that it's an oath-bound relationship. And of course, Every other covenant is made with people who exist in time. Humans are bound to time. But if you have a, a uh, party that is not bound to time, then he's, he can have a, an oath-bound relationship that's not bound to time. And so it's not just a temporal administration if you're dealing with an eternal God. Uh, and scripture does speak of an oath-bound relationship between the Father and the Son. So it's not speculative. We've seen the biblical evidence, the council of peace, uh, that the Father covenanted the Son a kingdom. It's not speculative. It's there in scripture. Uh, so you can see, again, you can see the previous biblical data. The text uh, in Luke 22 is explicit uh, that, that the Father covenanted to the Son a kingdom. Um, other texts clearly present a sworn oath between Father and the Son. And so it, it is a covenant. Um, there's no reason to deny its covenantal nature, and there's good reason to affirm it. And last, before we, before we talk about the importance, this last aspect is the foundational nature of the covenant of redemption. That's, trying to, that's what I was getting at with this. Obviously, it's kind of flipped on its head, but a foundational nature, it stands behind all the other covenants. Because the covenant of redemption is a covenant of works, right? To the son. The son had to work in order to receive a reward, and that's just what Adam had to do in the covenant of works. It's the same kind of conditional covenant God made with Adam. And the covenant of redemption is foundational to the covenant of grace, because without the covenant of redemption, there would be no covenant of grace. For God to enter into a covenant with a sinful people and show them grace, 
Christ needed to redeem them. And so the covenant of redemption makes the covenant of grace a possibility and a reality. Uh, you could say with Luke twenty-two twenty-nine, you could add in these terms. The father covenantally granted a kingdom to the son in the covenant of redemption, and the son covenantally grants a kingdom to his flock in the covenant of grace. And so we see these two aspects, these two different covenants, but one is foundational to the other. And so now we'll close our lesson looking at the importance. Why, you know, this kind of sounds too intellectual, kind of heady, um, too abstract. Why is it important that we have this covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? I'll start with a quote from Herman Witsius, who says that the covenant between the Father and the Son is the foundation of the whole of our salvation. And so obviously that's a very important reason to have it. It's the foundation of the whole of our salvation because without this covenant, the covenant between the Trinity, there would be no covenant of grace. We could not be, we could not have grace if there was no covenant of redemption. Uh, the covenant of redemption connects God's love for us to the love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have for one another. God's an eternal relationship of love between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And in that love, the Trinity swore an oath to his elect people to redeem them and to enter into a covenant of grace with them. Uh, the covenant of redemption makes tangible our election. Sometimes our election can seem just an, like an abstract exercise. We can't actually know anything about it, but it's really founded in a concrete relationship. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's a real promise made by the Father to the Son and executed by the Spirit. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1.4. And the covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit explains how we were chosen in Christ. Because we are a gift from the Father to the Son. We're a reward that the Father promised the Son upon condition of his perfect obedience. The covenant of redemption also emphasizes the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. Some only think of Christ as a savior, that Christ needed to win over an angry and wrathful God. Or they only think of God, uh, the Father, as the one who elected us to salvation, who is the only one involved in eternity past. But every external work of the Trinity is undivided. Every work that the Trinity does in creation is a work of the Father, Son, and Spirit as a unity. And so our redemption is an expression of the eternal love between Father, Son, and Spirit. It has a, our, our, our redemption has a sure and eternal foundation. It was carefully planned and thought out by the Trinity. It wasn't just one person of the Trinity trying to win over the other persons. They were all working in unison to affect our salvation. And so for all of these reasons, the covenant of redemption provides us with immense assurance and comfort it means that your salvation is as certain as the love that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have for each other. You're a Christian because the Father, Son, and the Spirit covenanted together to save you. An oath-bound promise stands behind your salvation, and it's not between you and God. It's between God and himself, between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that means the fulfillment of the oath has nothing to do with you. You can't lose your salvation because Christ fulfilled the oath on your behalf. Your salvation depends only on the faithfulness of God, even his faithfulness to himself. 
That's the importance of the covenant of redemption. And I took up all of our time. So if you have any questions, come see me after. Thanks for hanging in.